Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. We made it to episode 41. I know 41 doesn't sound like a magical number, but this will be the last episode we'll be releasing this year, so I thought it'd be nice to review some of my favorite moments from our first 40 episodes. Since we started working on this podcast almost a year ago, we've brought on a wide range of guests, including prominent self-advocates like Temple Grandin and Michael John Carley, autism parents like Eileen Lamb and Jamil Owens, some of our Global Autism Project partners, like Yasser Al-Jaidi from Saudi Arabia and Sangeeta Jain from India, and other professionals in the field, like Dr. Megan Miller and Robert and Nadine Shram. If you've been with us for a while, this 2020 recap will bring you back to the heartfelt stories we've been hearing from our guests. And if this is your first time listening to us, welcome. This episode will help you get a good idea of what Autism Knows No Borders is all about. Either way, I hope that you're left feeling inspired to create some change in your own communities. In episode one, which now feels like ages ago, we launched this show with a brief introduction of who I am and what the Global Autism Project is. Here's how I explained what this podcast means for our community. This podcast is the voice of our global autism community. We'll be speaking with a wide variety of people impacted by autism, from family members and international service providers to autistic self-advocates who have something to share. We invite you to go on this journey with us, a journey to discover what's possible when people step into the unknown, what's possible when people take bold action, and what's possible when people find opportunity in the face of adversity. Our aim is to transform how people relate to autism all across the world. Profound change happens when we're uncomfortable, and people who are familiar with our work know that we leap into discomfort daily. So we ask you to do the same. We'll be exploring controversial topics like ableism, international aid, volunteerism, and ABA's reputation amongst the actually autistic movement. Through shared stories of struggles and breakthroughs, we hope to extend the reach of human connection and remind people that they are not alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. In episode two, the CEO and founder of the Global Autism Project, Molly Ola Penny, talked about the organization's history and mission. Listen to Molly explain what the phrase autism knows no borders means to her. When I think about this idea of no borders, I think about something that impacts you wherever in the world you live. You know, I get emails all the time at two and three in the morning. So no borders in terms of the time of day. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and all the continents of the world, and all the countries of the world, and all the corners of the world. And so I think there's that, but there's also this idea that the autistic community can only accomplish so much, and we're breaking out of it. I've been doing this for 17 years, so we're breaking out of that idea. But when I think about no borders, I also think in terms of potential, in terms of what's possible for people with autism. And for me, that's really the aspect of our motto that resonates more. It's sort of, there's no borders and there's no borders to what's possible. 
Episode 3 featured Eileen Lamb, an autistic self-advocate whose son is also on the spectrum. Eileen is a writer, photographer, and host of a blog called The Autism Cafe, where she posts articles and resources for parents. Here's Eileen discussing the myths of ABA therapy and opening up about how hard it's been to receive online attacks from other self-advocates. It's been so hard for me to deal with the hate online, especially because it comes from people who, after I was diagnosed, thought were going to be my friends because they're autistic too. And so to have them come at me because I put my son in ABA therapy because I don't care about saying person with autism or autistic person and all of these things. It's like I'm always doing something wrong in their eyes, in the way I advocate. And I've had people like wish death on me for doing ABA with Charlie. Just yesterday, again, like my Twitter was filled with insults and like people tweeting at me from anonymous ABA accounts and stuff like that. And it gets like so tiring to, to deal with this because like you said, some of these people have never even been in ABA. And I know I'm a good mother and I would never do ABA if it was torture. And what they say is that ABA is trying to take the autism away from the child trying to make them normal, which is totally not what ABA is. ABA is here to help the child become independent and safe and maybe to learn to like communicate, you know, to decrease the child's frustration. I want Charlie to not run in the street in front of cars and like almost get hit. This is so scary. And ABA can really help with that. And they have helped us, you know, by helping him to learn the word stop and all of these things like not putting things in his mouth. That's something ABA can help with too. Like all of this dangerous behavior, the ways it taught him to communicate. Like it's not because I want him to be normal. No, I just want him to have like the best shot possible at life. Episode four showcased three members of our SkillCore community, Brittany Pei, Jesse Sheehan, and Andrew Bennett. SkillCore is our volunteer program that allows professionals and self-advocates an opportunity to provide meaningful training to our partner autism centers around the world. Listen to Brittany, Jesse, and Andrew share what they've learned about cultural humility from going on SkillCore trips. You know, everybody says be culturally mindful, but I feel like sometimes here in the States, what that means is identify that it's from a different culture, but you're still imparting your cultural norms on them. Instead of saying, okay, I identify that you're from a different culture. And now that means I have to step in your shoes and look at it from your perspective and not force my cultural norms on you, but really work around what your culture says. And, you know, maybe the end result, we'd love to get Peck started for this child, but we're not going to go there right away. You know, how do we take our baby steps? How do I have conversations with you about what the benefits are and, and listen to your conversation about your concerns or what that means, you know, to people in your culture. So I think global autism does a good job. You know, you're taking people from the States pretty much and putting them in another culture and that kind of shifts the understanding, you know, you're going to somebody else's country and you have to follow those norms. But here in the States, 
we're almost assuming that just because they're in the States, they should follow our cultural norms. And I think when we start to kind of twist that, there should be a better understanding and a better working relationship between what we're trying to accomplish and what they're willing to do. When you're going into these other countries, I've just had the experience where it's just so exciting and different and mind-opening that I've been excited to kind of take it all in. I think going in and being excited to learn from our partners and to take in what they know and value and then be able to share from that space. And it seems almost hard to think about doing it another way. I think at home, it does seem like an easier thing to have happen where we might feel like we're the more dominant culture, like people should assimilate. I guess, but in country, I've just always been so excited and it's so rich and there's so many neat differences in each partner site that I just feel like being willing to kind of embrace that and to ask a lot of questions and not make any assumptions when you're in a new place really can go a long way. What I wanted to cover with this question was what impact it had on the partners. They could really see that I'd made a lot of effort, and it also inspired a lot of the other team members to start asking questions, becoming more curious. It was also helpful because even though nobody else had learned the language, they were able to get more confident with using Google Translate to communicate with our partners who were not English-speaking. Because historically, we hadn't really done that. We'd done translation through people who spoke English. But I think that that effort sparked a lot of effort from everybody else. So I think that if you are the one that makes the first step towards another culture, they're the ones that are going to come back to you in return and really show their generosity, what they're about, and they'll be more willing to work with you. I think that's important to ensure a good communication and mutual respect is established before you really start getting into the meat of things. In episode five, I was joined by one of our Global Autism Project partners, Michael Huang. Michael is the president and co-founder of Uplus Academy, an autism center in Nanjing, China. In this clip, Michael describes how the staff at Uplus incorporate technology to teach safety skills. We use a 3D mapping room and we use a special camera. We just record some video in the downtown And so we can just put everything back to our 3D mapping room. And then the teacher will let the child know that, you know, this is a traffic light. And when it turns green, that you can walk. So when it turns red, you should stop to wait. And yeah, that's real image. That will just help the child to learn before we put them to the real dangerous world. Right, without any cars, and it looks like they're stepping on the street. Oh, yes, yes. In episode six, Shreya Jain from Chandigarh, India, talked about her experiences as the older sister to a young man with autism, Suvret. Here's Shreya sharing how she and her family educate their community about autism. Every time I used to go out into the park and somebody would make fun of us, I would initially feel really, really bad about it. And then my mom said, why don't you tell them about it, right? Just tell them. And then you see what what they say and what they do and how they behave. And I was shocked. I think that was like the earliest lesson that I learned about advocacy and awareness. Because the minute I told these young group of kids when I used to go to the park and told them that my brother has autism, he can't speak, but he's really good at kicking a ball and he's really good at cycling. These are the things that he can do with us. You know, I think everybody went out of their way to help him, to like accept him. You know, I remember all of us would go to pick him up 
from his evening classes together. So just talking about it and when you put something out in the right way, it sort of helps people understand better. Even when we go to malls, even when we go to theatres, right? We always try and tell people around us. Before they make a face, before they assume the worst, we tell them that it's not anything bad, right? He just has autism. These are the things that you can expect. Especially if we're going to be sitting next to you for three hours, you might as well know, right? Might as well learn. Instead of just like feeling uncomfortable for three hours, making us feel horrible <laughs> for three hours. Just, I'll, I'll tell you about it. I'll talk to you. So I think that's gone a real long way for us in terms of us feeling very comfortable with ourselves. Just saying that, hey, listen, don't freak out. Don't get scared. He makes weird noises. He's very tall. But he means no harm and he's going to do no harm. So just relax. Absolutely. And he might pick your popcorn, but please, please hide <laughs> it or please keep it on the other side at your own risk. Then they have no option but to laugh about it and smile about it and be like, okay, no, it's fine. You know, <laughs> so then you see. Episode 7 featured our partner, Mafer Chang, who is the founder of Centro Enigma, an autism center in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Like many of our partner sites, Mafer was forced to close her center for several months this year and transition to online services. Listen to Mafer's advice for parents who may be struggling during this challenging time. Right now, the advice is to not feel down about what's happening right now and to see the little steps that they can do with their kids at home. And even though it's like a very, very tiny thing, it can be a positive thing. So maybe try to look up things that they can work out as a family. And this is a good way of getting to actually know your kid because we live in a world that we run around so much, we work so much, that I have seen how parents tell me in every session, online session, I didn't know he liked X, Y, and Z. I didn't know he smiled like this. I didn't know he would point like that. I didn't know he had this smile with his eyes. And inside of me, I was like, yes, I see that every day. But it's a good way of like them to first to understand their child. It's not necessarily understanding autism. It's just getting to know your child. And from that on, there will be a lot of good things that can come up. In episode eight, we brought Russell Lehman on the show. Russell is a motivational speaker, poet, author, and autistic self-advocate. This is Russell explaining how his struggles with mental health pushed him to become a social recluse at the age of 11. It seemed like the harder I tried to be part of this world, the more I struggled because no one was willing to actually see me as a person. They saw me as my behavior. Uh, and it wasn't even like I was acting out. I was just crying most of the time, but for some reason they didn't like that. I ran into a lot of old school type of teachers and doctors where they thought I should just toughen up, you know, and that that's not me. I pride myself as an adult on being authentic to my feelings. And especially with regards to mental health, I don't want to hide anything. I don't want to be pressured by society to be someone I'm not just because I struggle with my mental health. So that was very true back then, too. I, I'm very authentic and I would show my feelings and a lot of them wouldn't take the time to see me as a human. Episode 9 was a double feature with our partners from Nairobi, Kenya, Pooja Panesser and Brooke Jadida. Pooja is a board-certified behavior analyst, and Brooke is a speech therapist. As co-directors at Kaizora in Kenya and Tanzania, Pooja and Brooke discussed how they encourage multidisciplinary collaboration among their staff and how their leadership styles complement each other. 
Here's how Pooja and Brooke described the stigma surrounding autism in Kenya and Tanzania. If you go into the rural areas, that's where you see more myths. And rather than looking into the medicine side of everything, there is more of the traditional healers. There's a lot of misconceptions around what autism is, around any developmental or mental disorder, actually. There's a lot of misconceptions regarding witchcraft and black magic and those kind of things. So trying to dispel those myths and misconceptions is important in those areas. We hear stories that traumatize us for sure. Last year, I think there was a story of where they would actually believe that to cure autism and especially hyperactivity, they had to put this child in hot water. Wow. Until the child comes down, which of course that means when they come down, they are dead. Uh, so yes, there those beliefs. Uh, there's some traditional medication they give, which definitely might counter the effects of what is being given maybe, or what the child requires, which is not okay. So yes, there is a lot of danger for that. Here, back here, and especially in Tanzania, people actually leave Kenya to go to Tanzania for traditional healers. In episode 10, our CEO, Molly, came back on the show to announce our partner relief fund. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been raising funds and sending them directly to our partners who needed them most to ensure that their centers can stay open and continue to serve their communities. So we're establishing the Partner Relief Fund that partners will then be able to apply for based on their need. And our organization will be working with a committee, including SkillCore alums, including some donors, including people from other sectors of humanitarian work, so that we can create a committee to establish where the funds are needed most and where they'll be able to go. And then, you know, I've gotten a lot of questions around what will the money be used for. And I think that the largest thing to know is that it will be used to make sure kids still have services. Mm -hmm. The most important thing right now is that services and learning continue. And not only important because kids need to learn all over the world, but important because this is a community of support that these families have created, have come to rely upon in good times and bad. And it's just so important that that community stays intact. In episode 11, I spoke with Rachel Barcelona. Rachel is an autistic self-advocate, model, author, singer, actress, and pageant winner. She's also a SkillCore alumni, having traveled with the Global Autism Project on a volunteer trip to the Czech Republic in 2018. Here's some of what Rachel had to say about the problem of masking among young girls, the actually autistic movement, and segregating people by labels. So it's like you're putting on a happy face. You're hiding who you are, and you're trying to fit in with what people expect of you. And that was another thing that I really, really had to overcome because I don't want to be like everyone else. I mean, who wants to do that? And unfortunately, I mean, this is why I'm here, because a lot of autistic girls, they don't get that. They've been taught to put on this mask and try to fit in with neurotypical society. And that's really not what I want to do. I just want to be colorful, be me, unapologetically me. 
And unfortunately, this is what happened when I went to social skills groups is because I was trying to be me, but there was all boys. I had no one to relate to. And that's when I entered the pageants. I wanted a friend that was a girl. And there was all girls, so that was a big difference. To put it simply, the Actually Autistic Movement is a movement in the autistic community that is really, really, I wouldn't say radical, but there are radical members in it. And it's composed of people like us, and we want to be seen. We want to be respected for who we are as an autistic person. I would say I'm part of it, and I don't want to be defined by the stereotypical portrayals of autism that are very common. So I would say that actually autistic is whatever you want it to be. For example, people tell me, oh, you don't look autistic. So I would respond, no, I'm actually autistic. Mm hmm so we just want to be respected. We want neurotypicals to listen to what we have to say. In episode 12, Joy Johnson shared her views as an autistic self-advocate, behavior specialist, and leader in the Black autistic community. In the following clips, Joy talks about when to target self-stimulatory behavior, or stimming, and why she thinks using functioning labels is problematic. Stimming uh, is one of those things that's more beneficial, but a lot of times you'll meet parents that think it's odd and they just, it's not that they're doing it intentional. I've seen people say that it's getting in the way of their learning, but how would it be getting in the way of their learning? I actually stem while I'm working and it makes me more productive. I watch credits because I need that extra stimulation because I'm sensory seeking. And so it actually helps me be more productive. So you have to do a cost benefit analysis. And think about if you take that away from them, will they be less productive? Because that's something that they may need because they're understimulated. You know, so unless it's harmful, I would not. A lot of times it's very subjective from your view, not you, but from, yeah. from like the teacher's view. They're like, oh, it's getting in the way. But you can't see his internal events. You don't know what's going on inside of him, especially when people are non-vocal. Yeah. And then they take it away from them and then other behaviors. So you take it away. And then you get aggression instead. Yep. You get internal events that you can't see. Frustration. Feeling like you have no control over your own body because people are trying to dictate what they want you to do. So to me, again, unless it's harmful, I'm like, you need to know because that's helping us. We're all autistic. And like I said, it's not static. And people, I feel like it's insulting to call somebody lower functioning. And so my peers that people consider that a lot of times, to be honest, they can be a lot more because that depends on the context of the situation. Very subjective. So if you look at a lot of, quote unquote, former Aspies, a lot of us have problems finding employment and keeping employment. However, clients that I have that would be considered by societal norms lower functioning and they've had the same job for 20 years. So who's really higher or lower functioning? Right. Because they're able to keep employment, you know, like long term. We have more social deficits that, as you get older, tend to impact you more, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I don't like it because it's, it's not accurate and it's harmful. I don't call myself an Aspie. Number one, it's not in the DSM anymore. Number two, I feel like that creates like an elitism, like you're above people when you're an Aspie and people think that you're a savant and that's not true. Not everybody who is an Aspie is a savant. 
Episode 13 featured Katajena Chiskova, a behavior analyst from the Czech Republic and one of our former partners. Here's Katajena describing how she built a community of parents at her autism center. Slowly, we were developing more and more trainings and adding more trainings. And then at some point, we realized there was still one thing missing, which was the motivation of the parents. Because we were just another approach that was telling them what to do and what not to do. And they didn't get the why. So we decided to make those trainings fun and to interconnect the community of our parents. We have a waiting room. And before that, the parents were just sitting there separately. Sometimes they said a little bit about their life, but that was it. And we set group trainings where the parents find out something about each other and we have a lot of fun activities and they will actually try those principles life. Why is it necessary to do this and that? Because ABA is amazing because everything is so easy to show real life and we can come up with activities where the parents try it in a playful way. They have fun and suddenly it clicks and it's like, right, that's why I need to do this. That's how my child feels. And it turned out to be amazing. And the parents are friends by now. So our waiting room is very lively. We have Facebook groups. They keep talking to each other and they are huge support for each other. Because again, as I said, the community around autism is not small at all in Czech Republic, but somehow people are so separate from each other. And this was a great way to connect them more. I was joined by Ryan O'Donnell in episode 14. As a behavior analyst and host of the YouTube channel, The Daily BA, Ryan explained what behavior analysis is and the different ways it can be applied. Listen to Ryan talk about how modern behavior analysis has evolved over the past few decades. There's this behavioral researcher in our field, Greg Hanley, that talks oftentimes about things should be televisable and this sense of anything that we're doing should look great, feel great, and leave people with that perspective. I think that's a fantastic difference. If it doesn't feel like that, then it's not modern behavior analysis. And the really cool things there too is the way in which we've built in like choice procedures and things like that. Whereas things used to be closed door, we're going to work with you for two, three, four hours and help you on your goals. It might not look great. Now there's a lot of like open door analyses where it's, hey, if we're as a therapist not able to help and engage this child, for example, in a way in which they want to be here with us learning these skills or you know whatnot, then we're failing, right? Like we should have these conditions. So I would say it swung completely different. In episode 15, autism self-advocate and TikTok influencer Timothy Boykin came on the show to talk about his autism and experiences growing up. In these next clips, Tim shares what it was like for him to find out about his diagnosis and also what his mom taught him about how to stay safe around law enforcement. I believe I found out around when I was 10 years old. I remember it being the fourth grade and I would ask my mom, why do I have to go to special classes? And she said that I have Asperger's which is a part of the autism spectrum, which means that I have trouble with eye contact. I can be socially awkward, but my mom reassured me that she loves me and that she will always care for me. With my 10-year-old mind, I felt bad because I would usually get bullied a lot 
and kids would call me the R word. I felt kind of weird. I'm a, I was like at that weird point, like, wow, I am different than other kids in my school. But later on, I found out that my difference is really nice because I realized that I am very smart. I can do the things that other kids can do. I am very nice to others. I started to look at the good side of everything. Maybe I'm different than others, but I'm like having straight A's in my classes. I believe that I was around the time of my early teens, like 13. It was around the era of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. And she really wants me to be careful, like being like a young man in my teens around that time with dealing with the police. Like try to put my hands up, say yes, sir, no, sir. Don't make any any fast gestures and tell the officer what what I am about to do. She just like told me, hey, whenever you get pulled over by the officer, just try, just try to be um, okay. Try to be uh, calm. Yeah, unfortunately, people with autism have a higher chance of having encounters with law enforcement. You know, the scariest part about it is 50% of victims of police brutality are disabled. In episode 16, we brought on our partner from Indonesia, Maharani Putri Kusuma. Maharani, or Rani for short, is the co-founder and owner of Rumatiara, an autism center in Jakarta. Rani was joined with Via Mawarni, a former therapist at Rumatiara who interpreted from Bahasa to English for us. Here's Rani talking about what moved her to build Rumatiara. I started Rumatiara with two of my friends, Anga and Khatik. Because we see that so many kids with autism don't get proper treatment. The first few clients that we got were actually kids that were denied to go to the school because of their behaviors. Or some of them, they've been receiving treatment for years, around four or more, but still they don't see any progress for their own kids. Especially with the family that has financial problems or they come from lower economical families, they often really, really hard to get the treatment accessible for them because they cannot pay the amount of treatment that is very expensive usually, especially in Jakarta. That's how and why we want to build Rumatiara because we want them to get the same treatment with the other kids with autism. 
Episode 17 is another double feature with two of our SkillCore alumni, Brandy Collins and Crystal Thompson. Both Brandy and Crystal are behavior analysts, and each are founders of their own ABA businesses. Listen to Brandy and Crystal's ideas on how to increase diversity in the field of ABA and further autism awareness in the Black community. I think one major thing that would help the field would be to have more ABA programs in historical Black colleges. To really go and push that. Like, we get the psychology degree, and there's an emphasis on a psychology degree, but many people know, like, just with a bachelor's in psychology, the employment, like, you're going to have to go on and get extra credentials and certs. But if it were pushed there and people were being pushed in to seek the BCABA and those type programs, something that really gets you into time, something that can put you in the realm where you're learning more about these behaviors, where you can go back into the schools and teach these te- um and assist the schools with learning how to deal with many of the behaviors and developmental delays that come with these diagnoses. That would be amazing. So I think including us more in historical Black colleges, as well as making ABA coursework be a big part of education degrees. You know, how many first-year teachers get classes with children that have so many diagnoses and they're not prepared? Mm-hmm. They're not. And then they're judged on their first year of teaching their classroom management based on how well they manage the class, even though they had, you know, multiple kids with multiple needs without the aid. So I think we could really make this feel more diverse if more people had an opportunity across all ethnicities to learn more about it and have an opportunity to have more exposure and more exposure to the implementation. I think in addition to there being a stigma, I just think that there's a lack of information. And so because of the lack of information, then there's a lack of resources. And because of the lack of resources, then people tend to fall back on, well, my kid's just bad. Or, you know, they just need to be disciplined or be on punishment or I'm going to take these things. And I think the reality is, is that there needs to be just a open forum about what is autism? What are these different autism spectrum disorders? What they look like? And how do we move forward once we know, you know, that my child has this diagnosis or I'm concerned or just simply giving a family information about the developmental milestones or the top 10 you know, signs that your child may have, you know, an autism spectrum disorder. I just think that more information needs to be filtered, more solid, good information needs to be filtered into the Black communities and other communities outside of the, you know, the white areas. In episode 18, Haley Moss talked about how her strengths as an autistic attorney have helped her career and why we need to strive for inclusion and accessibility. Here's Haley explaining what a sensory overload feels like, the harm of benevolent ableism, and what inclusion means to her. It's kind of scary. You feel like everything's tensing up. It's just this loss of control because there's so much going on around you and you want it to stop. And sometimes the first thing, at least for me, I will try to run. I will try to get out of the situation however I can. And the best way to describe what the sensory experience is like is imagine being in like the electronic style of like Walmart or Target or some big box store and all the TVs are on, the volume is on and they're all on different channels. And I'm going to ask you to listen to just one of them and watch one of them and try to get the message. And then you have all this other input coming in 
and it's just exhausting and overwhelming and anxiety inducing and just kind of a stressful, scary experience. And that's an experience I could feel with jazz music or just out in the world sometimes. And you, the first thing you want to do is like, wait, hold up, get me out of here. I need quiet. And it's just something that happens. And what I've learned is I can only fight it for so long on my own. And I've also learned to tell the people in my life, hey, if this happens, don't be afraid. Or hey, if this happens, I might just need some quiet, but I'll be okay. Or I might not be okay, let's leave. So it's just kind of communicating with the people you love and know, especially before it happens, or trying to find a way to make things feel safer. Inclusion to me means that everybody has a seat at the table and is part of that conversation. So inclusion, I think, is one of these things that kind of comes across as a big buzzword now because everyone's like, yeah, we need to have more people. But having us isn't just enough. We need to be active. Inclusion is not just a thing you do. It's something that you practice. It's something that you actively have to be involved in. So it's making sure that you are taking into account different perspectives, making sure that things are equal, that there is equal opportunity, that everybody's voice is respected, accepted, and heard. So I think it's a lot more nuanced and it's something that we have to continue to strive for. Ableism is a set of stereotypes and prejudices and attitudes that are negative towards people with disabilities. So it's all sorts of things that end up harming us. So when I talk about benevolent ableism, it's usually something that's meant in a positive way to try to help, but also reinforces your stereotypes and stigmas against people with disabilities. So when I thought of bullying for a long time, I would always say I was never bullied because I thought bullying was very two-dimensional. I thought bullying meant either someone called you names or somebody physically hurt you. But I realized I'd never had that experience, but I definitely was bullied and excluded and part of dealing with people who had ableist views. And the worst thing for me, especially in benevolent ableism, is it would come from people who cared a lot about you. So it always came from like a friend, but you would be the one friend in the group that wasn't invited to the party. And when you confront them about that, instead of just saying like, oh, it was an oversight, they go, well, it was at this loud place. We didn't think you'd want to go. And it ultimately just reinforces what they think you are or aren't capable of. And it sounds really good. Like, oh, they were trying to be considerate by thinking that it might be too much for me. But you're like, that's a decision I should be making. I can tell you if something is too much for me. In episode 19, Jeanette Washington educated us about speech therapy, and she discussed her specialization working with dyslexic students. In this clip, Jeanette talks about the different types of people who can benefit from speech therapy services. Speech therapists, also speech pathologists, can work across a person's lifespan. Um, We work with individuals with swallowing, with feeding, people who have had strokes and they need their equilibrium balanced so that they can be able to communicate even further or to be able to express ideas. So it is across the lifespan. I also think about stuttering. Those who are disfluent in their communication or their speaking can benefit from seeing a speech therapist, um, someone who has issues with their social skills and their very awkward in situations with other people. They can benefit from seeing a speech therapist. People who are actors or actresses and they're looking 
to create a, a very distinct sound for themselves as they are either speaking or learning a different language or a different dialect, they can benefit from a speech therapist as well. Episode 20 featured our partner from the Dominican Republic, Mari Carmen Hazuri. Mari Carmen, or Kaki for short, is a behavior analyst and owner of Centro ACAP in Santo Domingo. Listen to Kaki explain how not all areas of the Code of Ethics for Behavior Analysts are applicable to Dominican culture. There are two big aspects of the code that kind of conflict with Dominican culture. One of them is receiving gifts and that whole process. And the other one is with dual relationships. And for some reason, for me, they're kind of tied together because kind of like if you're receiving gifts from the family, then it might develop into a dual relationship. And like, I get that. But it is a big part of our culture for families to give their teachers and to give the lady that does your nails and to give the person you work with. And just like everyone you have constant contact with, to give them a gift for their birthday or to give them a gift for Christmas or for a teacher's Valentine's Day is a big gift receiving moment of the year. So it's a huge part of the culture and it's kind of jarring when you have to tell a parent like, oh no, we can't receive a gift or oh, like, oh, I know you did this mug with my name on it, but you need to take it back. So it kind of, I'm not saying it ruins your relationship, but it's kind of hard for parents to get. And it, it is kind of a barrier that you put into that rapport that you've been building with them. And it just doesn't apply to our culture as it does to an American culture. In episode 21, I was joined by Michael John Carley, a well-known autism self-advocate, author, and consultant. Michael and I discussed the importance of autism support groups being led by autistic people, how to process unemployment in a healthy way, and the need for a comprehensive sexual education curriculum for young people with autism. Here's Michael explaining how people with autism are given a censored version of sex ed. I think people are too scared of what's going to happen to us. I think that we have a society that is maybe the most scared of sex on the planet, which is ridiculous because of how privileged we are economically. We allow these hurtful, dumb, mean, scary, punitive legislature into how we rule what basically should be a biological response and a desire for pleasure that everyone deserves and has a right to. I can't say enough about how just destructive Americans especially are when it comes to healthy attitudes about sexuality. I think that everywhere on planet Earth, we try to control what is a biological thing with social constructs, with culturally created manifestations. And it's never going to work. Biology is never going to listen to a social construct. In episode 22, Pamela Fisher talked about music therapy and autism services in Australia. She discussed how musical interventions can help with skill acquisition and sensory regulation, and she even sang for us. In this clip, Pam demonstrates an example goal she might work on to target cognition. 
So if I'm singing somewhere over the rainbow, it might be to help them slow down, but at the same time, reach them their goal of sequencing, being able to follow a sequence of instructions. So I would use some chimes, which I have here. I'm not sure if you could hear my, I was tapping my knee at the same time, like in the break. Mm-hmm. So what I would do with a child working on something like that is I'd get them, I'd get these chimes out on the ground in an order and I'd get them to tap the floor in between so they could feel the rhythm of the song of how slow it's meant to be. Mm. And so they knew exactly when to hit the next chime. So that whole idea of sequencing coming down the scale, being slow, being rhythmic and getting them to follow the instructions given. Episode 23 is a double feature with two members of our Global Autism Project family, Cassie Hardin-Scott and Russell Hornig-Rohan. Both Cassie and Rusty began their involvement with the organization six years ago as volunteers on Skillcore International Trips. Cassie is currently our Director of Outreach, and Rusty is an autism self-advocate who has helped his teams cross communication barriers thanks to his impressive linguistic abilities. Listen to Cassie and Rusty as they talk about different outreach initiatives that can be carried out while in country. There are two groups of people that I think are important to start with, especially in a community where there's very limited understanding of autism and what it is. The first group is parents. It's really just, you know, if there's a center that exists, so like with our partners, one of the first goals I want to work on with them before we even go down the social media path, before we go down the path of creating community events is what are your parents feeling? You know, if they have a teenager, young adult, how are they talking to their teenager, young adult about their autism? Are they kind of supporting that teenager, young adult to become a self-advocate? And if not, how do we empower the parents to empower their child to get out into the community and be the self-advocate that that community needs. Because I think that's a really important key component is to get people with autism talking about autism in these communities. So it's not just parents and teachers and, you know, people that don't have firsthand experience, no matter what. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like to be a parent of a kid with autism. And I certainly don't know what it's like to be a person with autism. So I think phase one is finding out where the parents are and making sure that they're priming their kids, they're prepping their kids to get out in the world and use their voice in a way that makes an impact. In the Dominican Republic, I was doing a presentation about like how I was first diagnosed with autism and like how autism's really helping me develop bigger and better skills with languages and also how it's helping me like do well in many different areas, help me memorize different things, mm-hmm. and also helping me become a bigger and better advocate for other people on the autism spectrum in places throughout the world where they don't really have much services. And I always want to help people and other on the autism spectrum in 
other parts of the world, especially outside the United States and Canada, where they have hardly any services. In episode 24, autism father Jamil Owens, host and creator of The Autism Show and co-host of The Ben and Jay Show, shared how he ultimately accepted his son's autism and why he encourages other fathers to talk about their feelings. In this clip, Jamil opens up about what he wishes he would have done differently when he first received his son's diagnosis. I'm going to be, you know, the utmost transparent with you is quite honestly, I, I wanted that reset button. I wanted that button to sit there and say, hey, you know what? This is not this is not right, God. What you did to me is, is not right. I don't deserve this. I deserve a child that's healthy. That's that's just regular, uh, you know, quote unquote regular, you know, and, 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 and doesn't have any of these disabilities. And I wanted to leave. Mm. I, I, I really wanted to leave. Um, it, ooh. <laughs> it was very it was very, 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 very hard for me to understand why I am having a child as awesome as my son, Shane. I wish. I would have realized the importance of me being active in understanding what autism was early, right from the gate. As soon as his mom got on, you know, research and and finding uh, different uh, vitamins and, and studies about vaccinations and things like that, I wish I would have got out of my own head, out of my own mind and really put forth the effort to match her strength match her speed, match her, her motherly instinct. I wish I would have stepped up a little bit faster to actually do that. Episode 25 features our partner from Saudi Arabia, Yasser Ajaidi. Yasser is the co-founder and clinical director of Namayi Center in Riyadh. Here's Yasser explaining how he started his Give Me a Voice program and the impact this has had on families. Man training and Enabling the child to express his need as a human being was very important for me. So the result of all these things that we decide to create a specific program that will target the ability to talk or to express the needs of the child. And we made it like three months in total, 72 hours. And I start going to these organizations and big corporates. We were very lucky to meet a very wonderful guy. His name is Dr. Fahad Al-Aliyan. He is a, like the social responsibility officer in a bank here in Saudi Arabia called Bank Al-Jazeera. And he believed in this program and he supported us with, for 10 kids. And that's where we started Give Me a Voice. With the first 10 kids program finished, Dr. Fahad met with the mothers of these kids, and he was very amazed by the reaction of the mothers or the families of these kids, how the lives of the kids and their parents were changed because of the child now can speak, can express his needs. He's no longer in need to cry, to hit himself, to throw himself on the ground, because now he has a very reliable tool to communicate his needs. 
his thoughts, his emotions. And that was a life changer for these kids and their families. In episode 26, autism self-advocates Thomas Island and David Sharif came on the show. Tom is a public speaker and author of Come to Life. David is a job coach for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. In these next clips, David and Tom discuss requesting for accommodations at school and in the workplace. In order for me to have the accommodations that I wanted during my college career, I had to take a very, very long, brutal examination where one of my psychologists would clarify my strengths and weaknesses and the kinds of needs that I would want. So when I went to my undergraduate career at Pace University, I was accommodated with double time for examinations. I was not permitted to use lecture notes during the exam unless if my instructor allowed it. And for all of my classes, I was given a note taker, which kind of means there would be someone in the class taking notes for me, and then they would be put on a website where I can look back at them again. And I needed them when I wanted to prepare for an exam or even when writing my paper to make sure that I am covering all the material that is expected for my instructors. Not only requesting those accommodations, but how you go about disclosing your diagnosis to an employer, be it before during or after the interview is your call, the, the individual's call, but be mindful of the consequences of doing so. If you disclose during the interview, you might not get the job and they can't say you didn't get it because you have autism. If you disclose after, you should be able to get accommodations, but be mindful. You might be told, no, you may have a situation or that they, the employer can't work with. Like I mentioned earlier, they can't move mountains for just one employee. And if it's reasonable accommodations and cost-effective, because employers like accommodations that are cheap or relatively easy to work with, then you have a higher likelihood of staying with that company. And on the same note, being mindful of what you need help with and do your own homework. Have an option, like I mentioned with Disney, can you give me my directions in writing? Just be patient with me while I ask the same question a lot. Rather than just drop it in the employer's lap, say, I have autism. What are you going to do about it? That's not going to earn you any brownie points with anybody. So point is, knowing yourself, understanding what kind of help you need, and keeping the employer's budget, time, energy, effort, et cetera, in mind so that you're, you can be a team player and make it easier for everybody. Episode 27 showcased our Global Autism Project partners, as well as some of our staff members, together on one call. We went live on Facebook to give our partners a chance to share the impact that the pandemic has had on their centers, the current situation in their countries, and some positive takeaways that they've gained from the crisis. Here's Molly praising our partners' resourcefulness and resilience during these challenging times. That's one thing I think that really impressed all of us and didn't surprise any of us was how incredible you all were at adapting and making things work for parents and doing telehealth even in places where people don't have computers, doing things via text and WhatsApp and all that. And I think that it just speaks to, you know, 
we often say about our partners that it's not about your resources, it's about your resourcefulness. And your resourcefulness was so throughout all of this, and I know we're still in it, but in the in the beginning and still is, was just one of the most incredible things to see. And, and it, I was very confident that this team, this Global Autism Project family is going to stay together and weather this. And I think because you're used to being resourceful and resilient, it helped in a lot of ways. In episode 28, occupational therapist Cheryl Albright came on the show to talk about her older brother with autism, the benefits of occupational therapy, and how yoga can be used for children with special needs. Here's Cheryl describing how she applies a trauma-informed approach in her practice. So I do a lot of yoga-based intervention, and you know I'm looking for certain certain things within in that the ability to call and respond, the ability to move their body and copy a motor movement. Maybe I'm combining the two of them and it's dual tasking and I'm asking the brain to do two different things at the same time. So saying and move your hands or whatever the case may be. All of those things are addressing more of the central nervous system than they are anything else. You know, my teacher would say that the breath is the key in the door. And so in order to come out of fight or flight, yeah, you know, what do we tell? We tell them all to take a deep breath, right? Yeah. <laughs> I've heard many of you, well, you just need to take a deep breath, which there is some science and theory behind that now, but the goal is to have a calm nervous system. So imagine if, you know, our friends on the autism spectrum were at a nice even keel all day, how much more they can learn. Episode 29 was a triple feature with three mothers living in the Netherlands. Catherine Schafferhof, Anessa Muratovic, and Mojisola Swartes. Catherine is the founder and owner of Stichting Reach, an autism center in The Hague, and she's also a former Global Autism Project partner. Both Anessa's son and Mojis receive services at Reach. In these next clips, Catherine shares her struggles with finding appropriate services for her son, Moji discusses ideas to increase understanding of autism in their community, and Anessa offers advice for other parents. We've been to organizations which are supposedly the experts in early intervention and also diagnosing and giving the right tools to uh, help the children get the services that they need. And I didn't hear anything from them that was remotely what I heard from <laughs> the people in the U.S. It, it, they kind of like set you up feeling that your child is never going to have a future, you know. So it's very upsetting as a parent because I know that all of our kids have the ability to learn. I know that all of our kids have a future. I know that all of our kids can do the things that neurotypical kids can ultimately do. I know that we should never give up on our kids, but unfortunately in the Netherlands, they believe that, you know, they're going to be taken care of ultimately. So why get upset about it now? They'll be fine. The government will take care of them they're, you know, and, and that's, that's a really great thing, you know, um, when they're older and that's, it's kind of backwards here. It's like, they don't believe in early intervention until, you know, the age of uh, teenage years, but they have excellent services, teenage years, uh, and, and they have places for the kids to live, which is something that the U S 
you know, is really trying to get. So it's, it's just like the complete opposite. In a lot of cases, we as parents and the, the psychologists and the people that work with our children still need to be the advocates for our children, still need to be the voices for our kids. However, I think what would help, like I said, is for people to see our kids in the community, to see our kids, you know, walking around and being able to accept that and to be being able to, to say that, okay, this is autism, but, but that's also autism. And being able to understand those differences and being able to kind of live with those differences as opposed to looking at us, our children as freaks of nature, yeah. you know, which is what I sometimes often get. And I always say that as a parent of a child with autism, you have to have a Teflon skin <laughs> so that nothing can stick on you. You need to take care of yourself. You cannot pour from an empty cup. You really cannot take care of your children and especially not of your special needs children if you are just yeah, at your wit's end and feeling just overwhelmed. But that said, I think it's also very important to let yourself feel the feelings that you have. So whether it's just being very tired, devastated, <laughs> depressed, anything, what helped me through the, the, the very difficult weeks uh, was kind of allowing myself when I felt down to say to like have an inner monologue and tell myself well yeah that you feel like crap this is it that's that's how you feel right now and that's okay you may feel like this for this you know one hour or today or even tomorrow but then afterwards you're going to pick yourself up you're going to take a long hot shower you're going for a walk and then you'll feel better in episode 30, we welcomed Sasha Long, also known as the Autism Helper. Sasha shared her experiences as a behavior analyst and former special education teacher. Here's Sasha talking about the importance of building rapport when working with other professionals. I think I have this, you know, unique position of I've kind of, I've been on both sides of the table. Like I've been on the side of the table of the teacher with the specialist coming in. And I've been on the side of the consultant that comes in. And just like with our clients, we have to pair and we forget to pair ourselves and to make ourselves a reinforcer. I tell teachers all the time when it comes to pairing and what that means is like, you have to be the chocolate chip cookie. Like everyone loves a chocolate chip cookie. I, I would eat a chocolate chip cookie every day for breakfast if I could. And that's what you want, like you as the teacher in your classroom to embody. You want to be a chocolate chip cookie. And as a consultant and as a member of a team, we have to be a chocolate chip cookie too, like to that teacher. So if you come in and the first thing out of your mouth could be taken as criticism, like mm. you're now like the opposite of a chocolate chip cookie, like your celery, like no one wants that. So <laughs> like you want to, you know, really take the time to build rapport and to pair. Episode 31 showcased our partner from Rwanda, Avas Chomjisha. Avas is the founder and owner of Silver Bells, an autism center in Kigali. Here's Avas sharing why she is passionate about working with individuals with autism. It's amazing. Like I always tell people, uh, whenever we have um, a 15 years old who started speaking from the center last year. So I always tell people like, when I see 
an improvement in someone's life, that is my satisfaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Last night, I, I remember, you know, Liam? Remember Liam? Yes, I remember him. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yesterday they showed me his video when he was writing his name. You know, I, that made my day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really love what I'm doing because I know I'm bringing hope to the parents. I shared the video with the mom and the mom said, no, this has touched my heart. You bring back to me. I didn't know he can write his name. In episode 32, Brian Middleton joined me to talk about the neurodiversity movement and acceptance and commitment therapy. Brian is an autism self-advocate, a behavior analyst, and host of the podcast, O Behave. In this clip, Brian discusses why we shouldn't be trying to normalize autistic individuals. If there's behavior analysts who are trying to get be autistic individuals to behave like neurotypicals, they're wrong. And those individuals in the autism community who have that concern are very much right in having that concern. And we need to listen to them. Now, the flip side to that is there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of rage. And when you allow anger and rage to fuse with you, it narrows your view. And it prevents you from being able to see the whole picture. And I'm speaking from experience here. I'm not speaking hypothetically. And my my appeal to those people is to please stop judging all of a science because of the bad behavior of some people within the science. That isn't me saying not all ABA, because I know a lot of people get angry when, when that term is, comes out. And my response is, all ABA is responsible. Because until it is 100% stopped, we are all responsible for those behaviors and attitudes that those behavior analysts do. In episode 33, we welcomed former basketball star and anti-bullying activist Anthony Ayani. Anthony currently works for the Michigan Department of Civil Rights and travels the country as part of the Relentless Tour, advocating against bullying and educating students about autism. Listen to Anthony share why he started the Relentless Tour. That's why I started the anti-bullying issue, because there was a stat that came out, I think about eight years ago, saying that anywhere between 65 to 90% of kids who are on the spectrum in our country in schools, they are the number one targets for bullies in schools. And that's why I started doing all this because I was in those kids' shoes before. And, and not just like individuals in the spectrum, but all but all kids who've been bullied. But part of the reason why the bullies go after the kids in the spectrum is because they're the easiest targets. Because again, I was the easy target because of the things that I said and did, or I was tricked into doing things differently. And I have obviously, you know, what's so great about the spectrum, Rachel, as you know, is there are so many different kinds of individuals on that spectrum who have many different wonderful characteristic traits. And so, but some of those kids, for example, may rock back and forth a lot and bullies will see that in the hallways and they'll go after them for it. They may, they may call them weird or they may call them, why would you do this? Why would you do that? Like, you know, why are you rocking back and forth? But again, it's all, that's where it's on advocates to tell those individuals, Hey, this is why this person rocks in the hallway, or this is why this person watches his iPad a lot, or this is why he wears his headphones a lot. Or this is why an individual on the spectrum can't go to Michigan State basketball games sometimes because it's 15,000 people in this arena and the noises are too much. You know, the stimulus is just an overload. I've gone to schools, Rachel, where I've said that stat, the 65 to 90 percent, 
And then I've told students my story and then I've had bullies come up to me and say, hey, I was bullying this individual over there with autism because I didn't know what he went through. I just thought like, this is who he was as a person. I'm like, well, it is who he is as a person because that's what autism is. It's a characteristic trait. And so now you understand why he can't control certain things sometimes. And then I see those bullies go up and apologize to their victims. And it happened first school I went to. And that was something that I was proud of from day one, but it also told me, hey, these kids want to learn more about it. And once they learn more about it, then they can start having their backs for the rest of their high school, middle school, you know, the time they're in their high school and middle schools together. Episode 34 featured one of our partners from India, Sangeeta Jain. Sangeeta is the mother of a 21-year-old man with autism, Suvrit. And we've already talked about her older daughter, Shreya, being featured in episode 6. Sangeeta is also the vice principal at Soram, a school for children with disabilities in Chandigarh. Here's Sangeeta talking about some of her son's strengths, the different life skills they're teaching him, and how everyone seems to love him. So Suvrit has a lot of obsession with strings. So what came to my mind was like, okay, he loves strings. How about choosing all his vocations, which involves strings? So the embroidery that, that he does is with the strings. The weaving has, the loom has, the weaving loom has strings. And the other things also, which is doing decorative parts that is doing with the beads and all, which we call bandhanvars, string beads. So that's also with the strings. So he enjoys, I think. Also, we are teaching him his life skills, which are very important, taking care of his room, dusting and doing all that thing, washing utensils, mopping floor, cutting vegetables, helping in kitchen. So his curriculum is more revolving around these parts, but he can read and write also. He can type on computer also. He can say certain things. He can write about it and tell us. But then again, he needs supervision. He he wants someone to be by his side. And we're trying and working on fading away that supervision part also. He's pretty capable, I would say. But uh, as I always feel that you need to keep short-term goals as well as long-term goals with him. Mm-hmm. His smile is very beautiful. He has his meltdowns. He has his anxieties because he's nonverbal. So, you know, to say it all for his attention, for sometimes when he's wanting to escape and he doesn't want to do it, he gets into sometimes into self-injurious behaviors, which is very difficult as a mother and as family to deal with it. But anyways, I always say that when he is good, when he smiles, I think we forget everything. So and it's such a fun to be with him. And I think he is the binding force between all of us. Everyone loves him. That's what I'm amazed. Like whatever he does is loved by everyone. He has some charisma. I don't know what it is, but he's loved by everyone. In episode 35, we hosted behavior analyst Dr. Megan Miller. Megan is the founder of the Do Better Movement, a professional development initiative for behavior analysts aimed at developing humane, culturally informed, and compassionate interventions. Here's Megan discussing one area where behavior analysts can do better. We're trained to look at function and look at why 
challenging behavior might be happening, which is that there's nothing wrong with that. But unfortunately, it seems like that's all people are attending to nowadays. Like as long as they can figure out what's happening that could be maintaining, making the behavior persist. So the child might get out of doing a task or they might get attention or they might be given their favorite toy. If those clear patterns exist, a lot of people think if you just remove that thing, you don't let them out of the task, you don't give them attention, you don't give them the toy, that that would be enough to shift and see a decrease in the challenging behavior because it's no longer effective for them. And that does simplistically work in quite a few situations, but there's also a lot of situations where that's one piece of what's happening and there's a lot more going on. There's skill deficits, there's things happening in the environment to trigger the challenging behavior. There's emotion, like being able to navigate emotions and really figure out how to properly respond when things aren't going the way they want them to. And those, all of that kind of stuff doesn't get assessed and doesn't get taught or targeted. It just seems like people think it will magically happen. If we don't provide the reinforcer, <laughs> if we don't give mm-hmm. them the why of what, why they're engaging in their challenging behavior, it'll just stop. And like I said, I've had clients, of course, where that is the case. It was that simple, but I could, if I assessed them, all of those other things would have been taken care of. They didn't have skill deficits, you know, they could communicate just fine. It was just this environment that was set up to reinforce the challenging behavior. Unfortunately, for a lot of the cases that most of us have, especially nowadays with more and more people accessing services, they're not as simple as that. Episode 36 featured Robert and Nadine Schramm. Robert is a board-certified behavior analyst, a former special education instructor, and the author of The Seven Steps to Earning Instructional Control. Nadine is an applied behavior analysis and verbal behavior consultant, and she leads their Canospa ABA office in Germany. In the next clips, Nadine talks about the special education system in Germany, and Robert discusses one of the seven steps from his book. It is definitely much better than it used to be, you know, when we first started. But Germany is still, in Europe, a country with the highest percentage of special ed schools. So, you know, like the, in, in the U.S., where all the kids get to go to the same school, in Germany, many of them with a diagnosis and have learning deficits who don't fit into the regular picture. They go to a special school, you know, smaller groups, more teachers. You know, because we get to work in the whole country, we are seeing tons of kids in very different schools and it's very different from what you're used to in in LA or in the US in general it's a lot of more babysitting you know where the kids are just I mean they're trying to get through the day but there's not that much teaching going on because it's a very often overwhelming situations for the teachers in the classroom. So that would bring us to step three. Now that we've shown the child that we are ultimately able to give or not give their favorite things or their favorite activities based upon their behavior choices, and we've shown that being with us is more fun than being alone, that, that you know, the swings is great, but the swings with Robert is hysterical. He's laughing and, and, and tickling and jumping out of the way and pretending he got hit in the face or making funny faces and making me laugh. I don't want the swings. I want Robert in the swings. So how do I get that? And once the child is trying to pull you into their fun, now you're going to find that you're in a, in a better teaching position because rather than trying to pull the child to learn from you, they're pulling you, trying to get more from you. 
And as they're trying to get more from you, you're now in a position of high probability where you can give an instruction. And there's a reason why the child would want to follow that instruction. So if a child is taking me and saying, come, push me on the swings, push me on the swings. And I say, sure, touch your nose or sure, give me a high five. They're going to be much more likely to go, oh, yeah, or, or yeah, because I want you to do something. Under the desire for engagement, they're going to be more likely to cooperate with whatever simple instructions I give them. In episode 37, our CEO, Molly, came back on the show to talk about all things leadership. Here's Molly describing how her leadership style has evolved over the years. As I started the Global Autism Project and when we started running trips and we had people, you know, taking people out, it was like, I thought that leadership was just, you're in charge, you you listen, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. very simple. And what I learned through doing that is that that's not what it was, right? It wasn't just like, you're in charge, you're in the position. And then that kind of further perpetuated the idea, I think, where it was like, you just, you're a leader or you're not, right? And then I sort of realized that like, no, it's a skill set and there are skills that you can learn. And then I started to kind of learn more, you know, like I've read pretty much any leadership book I can find, any website, any Forbes article, any Harvard Business Review, you know, like obsessed with it, right? It's just a just an interest. <laughs> and so then I saw, okay, yeah, it's a skill set. It's something that we can we can teach others to do. And what I have come to learn at my advancing age here, what I have come to learn 17 years in, and really in a way like 25 years in of leadership training and development, is that yes, it's a skill set, and there's no amount of skill that's going to create you as a leader, right? Like really leadership is an inside job. And I think that's what I have come to learn about leadership is that it's an inside job and you need to really look at where am I not even a leader in my own life? Mm-hmm. Where are things not working or not working as well as I want them to? Where are things falling apart around me? You know, and really it's yours. It's something that, you know, you decide that you're a leader. You decide what your leadership looks like and the rest kind of falls into place. Episode 38 featured Stephanie DeKramer and Russell Botting from the UK. Stephanie and Russell work together at Auticon, which is an IT consulting business that employs over 200 adults on the autism spectrum as IT consultants. Stephanie is one of them, and Russell is her job coach. Next, Stephanie and Russell discuss how they work together at Auticon, and they offer advice for other employers who are interested in being more inclusive and neurodiverse. Yeah, we work directly together. So Russ being a job coach, oh, it's so good because he's like an extra layer of advocacy. So every time we get posted on a new project, he's there to stick up for me to say, oh, these fluorescent lights are too bright or, hey, she needs this extra bit of software on the computer or, hey, she didn't understand that thing you said. Could you explain it again? And it's, I could say those things, Russell always gives me the option if I want to say that for myself. It's not that the job coach speaks instead of you. It's just I find it emotionally, I find it so reassuring to have someone else on my side. And it does feel like they're on your side. It's an extra layer of someone that knows how to translate. It's like having a translator (laughs) if you were in another foreign country. like You wouldn't want to go to a foreign country without a guide, would you? So it's like if I went to Japan... 
it'd be really cool to have someone that could speak both Japanese and English to say, hey, look over this way, or hey, watch out, this part's really steep, this part might be difficult, so mentally prepare for Mount Fuji, whatever mountain you're going <laughs> to climb. I think, look at the skills, they might not impress you in person, they might not make as much eye contact as you want them to, but if you really look at what they can do and their attention to detail and their perseverance and loyalty and honesty are big qualities with people on the spectrum. I think people that have gone this far in life, you know that they're hardworking. So I'd say give them a chance and see, maybe do something that's a skills-based task so it's not completely a verbal-based interview. Mm. I think that might give them time to shine. There's different opinions on that, of course. Russell, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's true. That's that's what we do at Autocon. So, you know, as you can imagine, interviews are, are basically a way, a social construction of how we now generally assess someone's competence in a job. But actually, it's a test of selling skills, which individuals with autism, for various reasons, will find harder because, again, it requires theory of mind and knowing kind of what other people want to know, how much detail to go into. But what is really important, actually, what you want to know in an interview is can that person to do that job? So technical tests, tasks, task-based kind of interview processes are probably a better way to go. And can you actually test someone's competence at that skill rather than their ability to talk about their competence or, or their abilities, I guess, is probably a better way to go. But I guess it's also about, you know, when you, as an employer, if you think about the employees you already have and finding out, are you doing enough to support them from you know neurodiversity perspective? So it's about kind of opening up, you know, surveys and, and questioning whether you are doing all you need, all you can do for, for individuals and making sure that you are making reasonable adjustments when necessary and encouraging people to disclose uh, at the earlier stage as possible if they have a you know autism or neurodivergent condition um, so that you can put in place any reasonable adjustments that, that allow that person to excel or perform that role the best to the best of their ability, I think. I would like to add that people on the spectrum are generally very nice people. And that sounds super cliche, but people that have gone through crap stuff in their life generally are empathetic and they do understand struggles and they do their best to work with other people and they'll be a team player in their own way. They might not come to every drinking session or every after work party, but they'll love to support and be supportive of other people, especially other people that have gone through struggles. They'll know internally what it's like to have to fight through something and work a lot harder than everyone around you and just to kind of keep your head above the water socially. In episode 39, we welcomed Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is well known for both her pioneer work as an autism advocate and her lifelong dedication to animal welfare. We discussed a wide range of topics that day, including increasing employment for adults, fostering curiosity among children, staying balanced during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the classification of autism under a single umbrella. Listen to Temple's advice on how to do advocacy work effectively. Now, one thing about advocacy, I don't care if it's autism or it's in the animal field, you want to make sure that the things you advocate for do good things in the field. In other words, get out of the office and find out what's going on 
with people working in the field. And I'll say that for animal stuff, autism stuff, food safety stuff, I don't care what it is. Unfortunately, sometimes you've got people advocating and, you know, sitting in offices and they advocate for some law and it has an unintended bad consequence out in the field. I've seen that happen. So find out what's really going on on the front lines. It doesn't matter what it is that you're advocating. And the other thing is pick out something relatively targeted where you'll be more effective. It's sort of like someone says, well, we got to reform the entire educational system. Well, where would you start? Let's start out. Maybe we need to demonstrate again that an art class and some hands-on classes really help the students. And then I'm going to tell them about this study, that a Nobel Prize winner was much more likely to have a creative hobby than just a regular scientist. That's an actual study. Tell people about that sort of stuff. But figure out something relatively specific. Like, okay, adults with severe disabilities of various types that are getting abused. Okay, that's something relatively targeted that this agency's working on. Mm-hmm. They're not going to worry about the programmers out in Silicon Valley and where they may need, need to learn more about autism is on their marriages. That's where, where they will need it. But it's sort of like, it'd be pretty hard to work on both of those at the same time. I want to see people get out there and, you know, do everything that they can do and figure out how to make things better. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing I'll suggest, you want to advocate about something specific, leave the politics out of it. Hmm. You'll be a lot more effective. You've got, you basically have to decide what you want to do, be a little more targeted. Finally, in episode 40, behavior analyst Jenny Lorca from Early Autism Services shared her experiences participating in Global Autism Project's Leadership Academy Online. Leadership Academy is our six-week online course that has been proven to be effective in increasing time and task management, decisive action, integrity, and effective communication. In this clip, Jenny describes what she's learned about setting boundaries after doing Leadership Academy. Prior to doing the Leadership Academy, the virtual Leadership Academy, I was the kind of leader that really wanted to jump in and solve problems for people. I would work seven days a week. And, you know, many of those days I would work maybe 10 to 12 hour days because I thought that that's the way that you are a leader. You have to put Mm -hmm. yourself out there. You have to be available at any time just to be able to help people solve problems because that they need that support. However, through Leadership Academy, I started to see that setting boundaries for myself so that I could, you know, have those times for self-care actually would make me a better leader. It would make me somebody who is more present for my team. It would make me someone who who actually then could turn around and coach them to help themselves. There was a lot that I learned about the fact that you need to help people help themselves. They need to be coached to figure out their own answers because then they have ownership of those things in their lives and they can be proud of themselves so they Mm -hmm. won't be proud of themselves as much if I solve it. So that really changed my leadership style. It also taught me to now I take, you know, weekends off from work. And when I get back on Monday, I am just that much more ready 
for my staff to help and support them. And that's a wrap. As I was reflecting on these past episodes from 2020, I was overcome with immense gratitude for our community. A huge thank you to our guests for sharing your stories, to our listeners for your continued support, and to our team for putting it all together. Special thanks to Linda, our podcast intern, for joining us at just the right moment when we needed you most. To Tarek Davis for lending us your voice for our intros and outros. To Tremaine Ebanks for video production. And to Mark Aliana for music, audio, and text editing, and all-around moral support. Of course, none of this would have been possible if Molly hadn't believed in my little idea last year. From all of us at the Global Autism Project, we wish you a happy and safe holiday season and hope you can spend some quality time with your loved ones in some shape or form, even if it happens to be through a screen. We'll be back on our regular release schedule on January 7th in 2021. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.